Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. What makes us human? Like I said, nice easy start of the 10. Maybe you don't even feel human this morning. Um, well, uh, as, as I was trying to look at answers to this question, I came across uh, an article it's from 2012 in the Journal of Evolutionary Anthropology. It's a mouthful for me to say. I have to say it a few times now after this, so I'm going to just be, say it very slowly. Um, and they attempted to answer this question. They asked... 13 uh, distinguished evolutionary anthropologists uh, to write a short essay answering the question, what makes us human? What is it that makes us people? Um, And I want to emphasise now, I'm not critiquing evolutionary anthropologists or the field of evolutionary anthropology or evolution or anything like that. I'm not clever enough. I'm just finding it interesting to hear some of the answers. I'm going to read some of the things that came out. There was, no, there was no universal sort of agreement on this. So there was a whole kind of spectrum of things, but there was some unity in what they said. Uh, so some of the things that make us human, and we have language, that we have the ability to imitate, um, that we can see things from other perspectives, we can walk on our hind legs, we have morality, we have a sense of right and wrong, that's different from animals, we have culture, and they define culture, or the, the writer defined culture as being able to build, conserve, or transfer knowledge. There was things about being able to do art, arts and, you know, the fact that we have creativity. Um, one person made the point that from a genetic perspective, there's almost no difference between us and chimps, because 99% of our genomes are identical. Um, and that's kind of not a surprise. When you think about this as the evolutionary anthropology journal, they're going to focus a lot on the difference or similarities between us and chimps. Kind of makes sense as a starting point for them. One quote, which I, I enjoyed, um, a human is a brain that has evolved under social pressure to make us self-aware individuals who define ourselves by what we share with a group of familiar others. That kind of paints to me the picture of you could stick a, a brain, put it in a jar, and have it working, and it would still be a human. This is my favourite statement. I think this is what sums it up, and kind of sums up the kind of broad spectrum of beliefs, even in this one field. They said this, Since humans decide what words mean... We can draw the animal-human boundary as we wish, give it any meaning we wish, and change both whenever we like. In other words, it's whatever we think is, and we can change it arbitrarily. Which is possibly our overall culture's, and many cultures' response to this question, is just to change the lines arbitrarily, whatever suits us. Now, I'm not necessarily, I'm not critiquing evolutionary anthropology, but ask yourself this. If you think about some of those examples of what makes humanity or what makes a person think about some of the people that might not fit in those categories are they human as well and it's an important question to answer what makes us human how are we different from animals and now in 2023 how are we different from an artificial intelligence we have to get our heads around this question and understand what the bible says and i think the bible gives us a simple answer which is also the best answer the most profound and important answer to this question. The Bible says that we are created by God and we're made in his image. 
Right back at the beginning in Genesis 1, it tells us that God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. It says that twice, just to really emphasise the, the centrality of this fact, that we are made in the image of God. And to be made in the image of God is not about having physical characteristics like God. It's not about our genetics. You know, we don't share a genome with him. But it's something deeper and more significant. It's about the attributes and characteristics that we share with God. I like the way John Piper uh, sums this up when he was asked to define what it means to be created in the image of God. The quote will come up on screen as well. It says, John Piper says, if you create an image, if you make a sculpture of someone, you do it to display something about that someone. God created us in his image so that we would display or reflect or communicate who he is, how great he is and what he is like. I was created like a mirror. The mirror was supposed to be at 45 degrees with the clear side reflected, pointing upwards, so that when God shone on it at the 45 degree angle, it would bounce off at a 90 degree angle and turn, and the light would be reflected out into the world. I want us to keep this image, this backdrop, what I've just been talking about, in our minds and the truth that it represents, that we are made in the image of God, in our mind as we look at our psalm today. Because we're looking at the psalms, we're doing psalms this summer, and I've chosen to look at Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 is the oil painting on the canvas of this truth that we're made in the image of God. That's the canvas, right? That's the frame of reference for which Psalm 139 can fit in. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a long psalm. I'm going to focus on, on, on a few verses. I'm going to read the whole thing out and I'm going to hone in on a few verses. So, um, Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before the word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. And this is a section now that we're going to focus primarily on today. Verses 13 to 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I'm awake, I am still with you. If only, God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you are, you are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. 
Do I not hate those that hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This morning, I want to look at Psalm 139 and, and look at what it means for how God thinks of us. And then what it means for how we ought to think of other people. So two things. And we're going to focus primarily on verses 13 through 18. And have that reference of Genesis 1 in our minds all the way through. So what does God think of us? Well, being made in the image of God means that we are treasured by him. You are his treasure. When God made the world, he made the heavens and the earth. In in Genesis 1, it describes how he made the stars and he said it was good. And it describes how he made the mountains and the oceans, and God said it was good. And he made all the animals, from the blue whale to the lion to the parrot, whatever is your favourite animal. And God said it was good. And then at the end of Genesis 1, he makes humanity, and he said it was very good. We are treasured, we are valuable to God. We're the pinnacle of creation. We are beautiful. Do you know you're beautiful? sat in a room of beautiful people but it's not a superficial beauty right this is not the beauty that's based on fashion or cosmetics or the filters that we can apply on our instagram camera instead it's a beauty that is given to us because we reflect his glory it's the mirror it's the light that shines off us of god that's what makes us beautiful it's his beauty shining off us that makes us beautiful There's been a recent study by the Mental Health Foundation that found that 20% of all adults in the UK felt shame about their body in the last year. And that nearly a quarter of teenagers said that they felt anxious about their body because of images on social media. In an image-obsessed culture, we need to hold to the truth that our beauty doesn't come from what's on the outside, but what's from within, and because of who we reflect to the world around us. Because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what the psalm says. It talks about the great care and attention given to how God created us and formed us. It says we are woven together in the depths of the earth. It's a beautiful piece of writing. I think this is one of the most beautiful texts in all of literature. This idea of he's like a seamstress weaving us together. We're his handiwork. We're created and crafted by his hands. We're beautiful. Also, God is close to us. There's no part of our entire existence, the psalm says, from the moment that we, even before we were conceived until the day that we die, that is outside of his loving care and attention and his gaze. The bit that Andy read out at the start this morning, where can I, David asks a question, it's a rhetorical question, where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? He says, if I go to the highest points of the heavens or the depths of the ocean, or I go to the far reaches of the sea, even then he can't get to the boundaries of God's love and reach and care and gaze and his grace and mercy over us. It's 360 envelopment that he has around us 
That's how close he is to us. And no matter how far we go from him, no matter what we do, no matter how far we walk away from him, we can't escape his presence. We can't be lost to him. He will always be there to bring us back. Also, God planned you. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Elsewhere, when, when God calls Jeremiah, he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Do you know, there isn't a single person in the world alive today that God didn't want to exist. I'm going to say something controversial now. The first of a few things, I think, this morning. People talk about overpopulation, right? There isn't a single person on the planet that God hasn't wanted to exist today. You're not a mistake. No one here is a mistake. Ultimately, being made in the image of God means that we are valuable to him. And and so valuable, so valuable to God is, is humanity, that he took humanity on himself, clothed himself in humanity in order to bring us back into relationship with him. Humanity matters so much to him that he redeemed it when we went astray. Jesus came down and walked in human clothing so that we could be brought back to God. And that's even though he knows our innermost being, he knows all the thoughts that we've ever had, the darkest thoughts that we've ever had, all the things that we'd be too ashamed to tell anybody about. God knows them, and yet he steps into humanity to redeem us and save us because he loves us, because that's how special and valuable we are to him. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. I don't think anywhere else in philosophy or science or any other human endeavour, there is a greater answer to the question, what makes us human, than this. So broad, so vast, so wide, so all-encompassing, and so beautiful and profound. And it's profound for us, and it's also profound for how we ought to think of others. Because if we believe that we are made in the image of God, then so is everybody else, Right? And that has massive implications for how we think of people, speak about them, and treat them. Because you can't believe that you're made in the image of God and then deny that truth about somebody else and think that you're somehow more valuable than them. And ultimately, any other definition of humanity, what makes us human, that isn't rooted in this, will find a way to dehumanise some people, somehow. There's always going to be a line And there's always going to be somebody, some people group, somewhere outside of it. And that is the human history. You can see that all the way through. Some of the worst atrocities ever committed by humans have generally been rooted in the fact that we've dehumanised somebody and therefore justified doing the most awful things imaginable to them. And Christians ought to have a high view of all human life. A high view of all human life. I, when I was writing this, I did initially write pro-life. But I've, that's a weaponized term now, isn't it? That's a cultural war term. And we need to avoid that. It has loads of unhelpful connotations. And the term is too narrow, actually. It's way too narrow. It's interesting. I found out that the BBC Style Guide actually says you can't, that, not to use the term pro-life. They have to use the term anti-abortion. So if you say pro-life, that's the context people think about pro-life. 
is in that frame. But that's way too narrow. Because when we think about having a high view of human life, it's, it's way beyond that. It's way bigger. And I'm going to look at some of the ways that it's bigger than that this morning. Because having a high view of human life is massive. <laughs> it has a massive implication for human rights. Because everyone is made in the image of God, we are all equal before him. I'm going to say that again. This is really important. Because everyone is made in the image of God, we are all equal before him. Black or white, rich or poor, male or female, whatever nationality, equal before God. And this is what provides the basis for any human rights. You see, our, our culture takes human rights as a given, that we inherently have rights, but has no basis for saying we have human rights. Because if you believe in Darwinism, there is no space for human rights in that. If you believe the Bible, there is. Because no other argument for human rights makes any sense. Mother Teresa put it like this. She said that human rights are not a privilege conferred by governments. They are every human being's entitlement by virtue of his humanity. I've been reading a book, um, which I highly recommend. It's called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. It's quite a recent book. And, and he talks about this, this idea that so many of the things that we take for granted in our culture today, human rights, compassion, equality, are ultimately born out of the truth of the gospel. They, they didn't exist in human thought before the gospel. And he quotes um, an Israeli professor. So Glenn Scriven is quoting an Israeli professor, an author called Yuval Noah Harari. And this is what he says. Most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? Human rights, like God and heaven, are just a story we've invented. They are not an objective reality. They're not a biological fact about homo sapiens. Take a human being, cut him open, look inside. You will find the heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA. But you won't find any rights. The only space you find rights in is in the stories that we've invented and spread over the last few centuries. It may be very positive stories, very good stories, but they are still just fictional stories that we've invented. Remember what I said before, the, the, the quote about being a human is that the stories that we share with a familiar group of other people he would say human rights is just one of those things. And he's right if we don't have God. 100% right. If we're just chimps who walk on our hind legs and have learned to speak, that's correct. And we should all pack up and go home and give up any social justice. Because it doesn't make any sense. Let's move on. <laughs> because everyone is made in the image of God... We reject all forms of discrimination. Whether that's direct. You know, I, I saw a stat, there's 150,000 reported incidents of hate crime in the UK in 2020 and 2021. It's risen in the last 10 years. A vast majority of those were, were racist in nature, but there was also uh, a, a, an increase across the board of hate crimes against people with disabilities and, and also homophobia and transphobia rising, all of them across the board. This is the nation we live in, whether we like it or not. Reality is being a disciple of Jesus is 100% incompatible with hatred against anybody. 
It's like two magnets that are opposing each other. The more you push one magnet to the other, the other one's going to repel away. They do not mix. There is no Venn diagram overlap between hating anybody and discriminating against them and following Jesus. When we're commanded to love our neighbour as ourselves, Jesus doesn't offer a qualifier. He doesn't say, except for people with different skin colours, except for refugees and asylum seekers. I'm hopefully on solid ground with everyone here. I can see nod, right? Okay, great. Good, good. Right. But it's also indirect. This is more, potentially more dangerous. The Equality and Human Rights Commission... Uh, did a report in 2020, and they found that outcomes in health, education, employment, and living standards are far worse for ethnic minorities than white people in the UK. And if you are black, you are three times more likely to be prosecuted and sentenced for crime than if you're white. We live in a nation that has systemic and institutional racism, whether we like to admit it or not. The stats prove it. Think back to Psalm 139 where David says, search me and see if there is an offensive way in me. If we do this, it may lead to some really uncomfortable truths about unconscious biases that we have. We all have them. The problem is they're unconscious and we don't know them sometimes. But we absorb cultural narratives. We absorb all sorts of things, good and bad, but we absorb bad things and bad ideas about people. And we... we Having a high view of human life means that we need to be prepared to face up to some of these unconscious biases in our own selves where we might be contributing to the systemic and institutional uh, prejudices that are in society. And repent if we have to. It's uncomfortable, but it's, this is what it means to have such a high view of human life. Next. Because everyone is made in the image of God, we reject objectification. Our, our culture uh, rightly stands against objectifying people. Um, yet, the revenue from the porn industry across the world in, is $100 billion. It's doubled in 20 years. $100 billion. Netflix, $30 billion. It's more than three times more worth, uh, has more revenue and value than Netflix. You see, porn is one of the greatest examples of objectification that we have come up with. And it sells the lie that people, particularly women, but not just women, are nothing more than a tool that you can use to have sexual gratification. Compare that to Jesus and what he says. He says, if we even just look at somebody with lust in our hearts, we've committed adultery with them. That's a very different standard about purity and how we look at people, isn't it? Looking at someone with lust, that second, third, fourth glance, that fantasizing about them, it's effectively the same thing as watching porn. The heart. It's objectification. You're using that person to feel something good about yourself. They're nothing more than an object. Whereas we're called to a higher standard of purity and vision for people, that we do not look at people like that. We treat people as brothers and sisters. Next. Division. 
The truth that we are made in the image of God means that we love our enemies and those who disagree with us. Look at what Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. Who is it you disagree with about politics, ethical questions, even a sports team that you support? How do you speak of them or to them? When it's something who has a different you know, opposing position to you, do, you, do you take time to understand what their position is? I would argue that if you can't adequately explain back to a person what they believe in a way that they would say, yes, that's what I believe, and you don't really understand what they believe. And then to criticise and to, to, to sort of throw bombs at them is wrong. Instead, what happens in our culture is that we just build a straw man of the opposition, right? And that just gives us licence for barbed comments, sarcastic comments, joining in the Twitter pylon. It's another way to dehumanise people, isn't it? I, I, I have to admit, this has been a weakness for me. I have been using Twitter for years. I, yeah, my Twitter feed... In, historically, looks like this. And I felt one day, a few years ago, man, this is not healthy. Right? I, I am not thinking well of other people. I'm in my echo chamber, and I'm saying unkind stuff. So I stop tweeting. I still scroll every now, every now and again, most days. But I don't tweet, because I just, there's nothing good comes out of it. The thing is, even when I scroll through, I don't know if you have this, you go into the echo chamber and you'll see the stuff that's being said and something rises in me. I get angry about some of the things and, and some of the things that are being said aren't even factual, right? But it, you, know, you notice it? You're kind of in your social media feed and this kind of sense of, like, is that healthy? I don't think it's healthy. Maybe we should just quit Twitter. Yeah, Not just because... <laughs> Lots of reasons to quit Twitter. <laughs> This is one of them. Okay, the, the truth that everyone is made in the image of God means that we choose to see the unseen. Verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God's eyes see those that no one else sees. Typically, this verse is, is used in an anti, as a kind of pro-life anti-abortion thing. And... Your view on that will be totally affected by your answer to the question, what makes us human? Your view on personhood, totally. You think back to the beginning, the, the list of things that we read out, what makes a person? Who's outside of the lists, right? That will define or help define your view on that. Because it's not just babies in the womb that lack some of those characteristics, is it? And it's a slippery slope when you realise that. But I'm not going to talk about that. Because I hope it's fairly self-evident. Instead, I want to talk about my visit to Francis' house that I took a couple of weeks ago. I went for work. I had a work meeting there. This is Francis' house in Didsbury. For those that don't know, it's just down the road from here. It's a children's. It's a Catholic hospice. Um, it's been going for a few. It's been going for about thirty years now. 30, 40 years. Um, they say on the website uh, the philosophy of Francis' house 
family trust developed from the belief in the sanctity of life and the dignity of the person. I went for a work meeting, and at the end of this work meeting, the reverend who, who runs Francis House offered me a tour. So I said yes, I went around, and it's, it's, it's a magnificent place. Uh, these are sick children who are not going to get better. And they, they stay there, they stay with their families, and they're cared for. There's amazing stuff. There was this computer that the, that the children could use if they can't move, because it can track the eye movements. This is the kind of stuff that they're doing, and it, this is all done on charity. And I was moved and, and in awe of these people and what they do. And then I went into this little room at, at, at the edge of the building, a small room. And he said, this is a rainbow room. This is where we, uh, families can come in the aftermath of the death. And in the room next to it was a bed. And on that bed was a Moses basket. And he said, this is the mortuary room. And families will stay in here. And we'll care for them. I said, how many, how many times a year are you using this thing? It's about 40 times a year, minimum. Every week, almost, there's a, a family in there and a child or a young adult. And I, oh, sorry. I went home to carry on working and um, did what I'm about to do now, which is break down in tears. Just totally wrecked. And then I heard, I'm pretty sure this would be God speaking really clearly, this is what it means to be pro-life. What these people do. And that's when I chose this psalm to speak about this morning. Because they see the unseen. And they value them. And they have dignity and value and worth. Because they realise that those children, some of them can't move. All sorts of really awful conditions that they live with and, and die with are made in the image of God. Just like you and me. This is what it means to have a high view of all of human life. It means that we see the unseen, those on the fringes of society, those on the outside of the margins of society, those who have no voice, no defence. If we don't speak up for them, no one else will. It means asylum seekers and refugees. They're not boat people, they're people, they're human beings. It means the unborn. It means the disabled. It means a vulnerable elderly person. It means prisoners. All sorts of people that God sees, that society chooses not to. He sees them and so should we. And, and Jesus says something incredible in the parable of the sheep and the goats. We almost miss it. He makes a direct link between how we treat the poor, the needy, the unseen, and how we treat him. In other words, he associates himself so closely with these people that whatever we do for them, we are doing to Jesus. 
Whatever you did for the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me, Jesus said. This is a high value of all human life and that we are called to. This is what it means to be created in his image. My aim this morning is to try and broaden our view of humanity, of ourselves and of everybody else around us and to call us to action. The love of God we see in the Bible, that we see about in, in this psalm, the thing about how he's made us and formed us, calls us to action, drives us to action. And I want to just finish with just a really few quick points about what this action might look like. Firstly, it should be positive action. We can advocate for causes, we can advocate for the unseen in a Christ-like way. It means non-violence against people. but spiritual violence through prayer. We contend for this stuff. Ephesians 6 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people. We're not violent with people, but it's violence against the spiritual authorities and forces of evil in this world. We should be contending and praying. That's where we commit violence against the enemy, is through prayer and petition. But love and non-violence to people, whatever they do, There's too much of of Christians doing stuff to people that they should not be doing in the name of causes. And maybe they mean well, but they have got it wrong because they should not be, you know, petrol bombing abortion clinics. We've got to steer fully clear of culture wars and division and hatred and conflict. and, And we reject dehumanizing language. We speak words of love and truth over people and about people. We promote a positive view of humanity. It's about what we stand for, not what we stand against. Secondly, our our action should be powerful. It is powerful because the gospel is the only thing that gives power. There's no power in the message of social Darwinism. Not really. There's power in the message of the gospel. And and also the gospel is the only thing that provides grace and mercy and forgiveness for those who have fallen short in any of these things that we talked about this morning. And the truth is we all have. All of us have fallen short in some or all of those ways this morning. And we are objects of grace. It means that there's no shame but acceptance. Our forgiveness that we receive in Christ for any of those things is total and we are freed forever if we turn to him and repent. Lastly, our, our, our action should be costly. There's loads of really, there is genuinely loads of great social justice in the world, outside the church, like brilliant, fantastic. There's also a lot of virtue signaling. I've never seen a tweet feed a hungry person. That sounds mean, but it's true, right? But I would also say, and this may be another controversial point, a lot of the action that people take on social justice doesn't really cost them. It's a cause that they can support without it costing them something. It doesn't cost them a change in their lifestyle, perhaps. 
That's not true of everybody. This is, you know, it's a bit that clear. But often, it is a limited liability. But Jesus calls us to have total commitment and costly giving to those who are unseed on the margins. That might be time, that might be money, that might be both. It means that we stand in the gap, we do something about it, but it might cost us. All these things cost us. The people who give their lives to run in Francis' house, it costs them. It will cost you to sit through 40 deaths a year of sick children and the families and the grief. It costs. But that's exactly what Jesus did for us when he came for us. It cost him everything. And he's our example of what it means to serve others. Serve those who are outside of the margins. We were outside of the margins of God's relationship because of what we had done. And yet Jesus took the ultimate cost to bring us back in. Glenn Scrivener, who I mentioned before, he says, if natural selection means the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest, then Christianity is about the sacrifice of the fittest. That's Jesus for the survival of the weakest. That's us. And he's our ultimate model of how we serve and love people.